0: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind the scenes revelations.
1: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with Diana Gabaldon. She's the author of many books and is best known for the hugely successful Outlander series of books that the Stars Network has adapted into the Outlander TV series, also a big success. Her stories of time travel, action, romance, drama have captivated the world in a way that few writers have ever done. And we're thrilled to have her with us here today. Diana, welcome. Appreciate it. I'm glad this worked out for you to Uh be in the city here. I know the last time I saw you, you had a... An event in Scotland, I think. Did that already happen, or that's coming up? See,
2: I think that's later. Later
1: this year. Okay. I keep going
2: back and forth to Scotland because not only is the show there, but also our younger daughter and her family are there. So we take every excuse to go to Scotland.
1: (laughs) Such a beautiful area of the world. I was there with my family Uh about two years ago. We saw Edinburgh Castle, Uh and you know, just it's such a. It's a really transporting kind of place, but Absolutely you know, a, as, uh, as your books are. So, we were corresponding about the drink today, and it sounds like if we were going to really get after it, it would be scotch and champagne. But since we're going to keep our wits about us today, mm-hmm. a little Ooh, Bailey's Irish Absolutely. Cream on the rocks. Wonderful. Which, uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as the bartender, this is a very light lift for mm-hmm. us today. Put some ice in there. Nobody saw that. A little ice on the floor. No problem. Uh,
2: this is very hospitable of you.
1: <laughs> well, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this.
2: Yeah. Normally, I drink champagne, you know, with, with dinner and uh, scotch as a, you know, uh, evening drink. So this is uh, very appropriate for the time of day.
1: Good. All right. Well, this will uh, this will settle us right in. Absolutely. And uh, you have events probably after this, so we can't, can't hit the scotch too early. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. It's great Cheers to see you. To you.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's uh, not my event, precisely, but uh, Poets and Writers is having their gala dinner tonight. And my editor from Random House, uh, Jennifer Hershey, is being honored as editor of the year. So they asked me, could I come, you know, and host a table and so forth. Oh, that's so great. I might be asked to say one or two words about why she's a great editor. But I'll, I'll beyond bet. that, I mean, you're, <laughs> it's she, not my show. <laughs> she, uh,
1: that's, it sounds like it's a great tandem, you and she, because, the, the mm-hmm. you know, you, this book series is just phenomenal.
2: Well, yeah, she's a wonderful editor, yeah.
1: <laughs> so born in Williams, Arizona? In <laughs> Williams,
2: Arizona. Arizona, yeah. Williams
1: Arizona, and but grew up mainly in Flagstaff. Is that's that right. correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and your father was a state senator for Arizona. That's right. Yeah, so mm-hmm. grew up with some a political element around the house. And
2: well, <laughs> he uh, didn't go into politics until I had left the house. Luckily, okay. yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah,
1: that's a, a and Arizona became sort of a hotbed politically. You know, years later with well, McCain, it is now. All yeah. That. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm and really that you're you're kind of an academic. Mm-hmm. So I have in my notes you have your BS in zoology, right. MS in marine biology mm-hmm. and PhD in behavioral ecology. That's right. That's awesome. And then you were 12 years a professor mm-hmm. at Arizona State University's Center for Environmental Studies. That's right. Mm-hmm. So can you describe that academic period of your life? And were you reading fiction at that time as
2: well? Oh, yeah. No, I. Uh, my mother taught me to read when I was three years old, and I have never stopped. So I'm 71 now, so you can read a lot of books in, what is that, 68 years? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I have read fiction all my life, as as well as, you know, nonfiction periodically, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, professionally.
1: Yeah. And But during those years in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. like all good professors do, you were not not only teaching but you were publishing academic works yeah. mm-hmm. as well and i read about a couple of these one was on the pinion jay <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes that was my doctoral dissertation nest site selection in the pinion j gymnorhinus cyanocephalus yeah. or as my husband says why birds build nests where they do and who cares anyway
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that one i looked up and it's a very pretty <laughs> blue bird as opposed to the other one you you wrote on the child this one i couldn't believe was a thing the chinese mud skipper fish
2: oh that one yeah and i looked that up it looks sort of like a tadpole (laughs) with fins yes well that one was accidental so to speak Mm. um at one point in the 70s my husband uh, had got a job with uh, Cooper's Lybrand we were in California yeah. and so I said well great I'm sure I can find a job somewhere and I did at UCLA I uh, got a postdoc appointment and what I did was I took over for a principal investigator as they call it somebody who runs a lab and has graduate students and all that mm-hmm. I took over for him while he was on sabbatical and uh, this was one of his projects was the uh, the mudskipper stuff mm-hmm. and he said the work has already been done if you'll you'll write it and analyze the data, you know, you can be co-author. And I said, Fine, no problem. So that's what we did.
1: Little did he know he had he had one of the future great authors and best selling (laughs) authors of all time doing his his Chinese mud skipper fish piece. (laughs) Very funny. So around nineteen eighty eight Mm -hmm. You decide to write a novel just for, quote unquote, for fun, to learn how to do it.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was serious, too. I had known from the age of eight that I was supposed to be a novelist. I just didn't know how. I mean, nobody does. Basically, there there are actually no rules for doing it. And as I tell people, luckily, you don't have to get a license. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody rolls their own, essentially. And you learn how to do it, either by reading a lot, but Nothing will teach you to write except the act of writing. Mm -hmm. And I knew this from my academic career and so forth. And uh, so I said, well, you know, the only way to learn how to write a novel is to write a novel. So I'm going to write one for practice. And, you know, then I can see, do I really want to write a novel? Mm -hmm. And if I do, then I will know more about how to go about it. So I said, okay, this is a practice novel, I'm not going to show it to anyone, I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing, because this is death, you know, because everybody starts asking you, well, when are you going to be finished, for one thing, and, you know, are you going to sell it for a million bucks, and things like that, all of which is silly. I mean, until the book exists, there's just really nothing. And uh, so I said, well, I'm not going to tell anybody. Also, uh, at this point, I had two full-time jobs, essentially, and three small children under the age of six, and had I announced to my husband that I intended to start writing a novel, he would have tried to stop me. Mm-hmm. Not out of any fear that uh, that I would write a successful novel, but out of fear that I would drop dead. And, uh, you know, had he tried to stop me, he might have succeeded, at least temporarily. So I didn't tell him. And uh, it was quite some time before he found out what I was doing.
1: Where? So where were you finding? You had two full jobs, as you said, mm-hmm. just writing in the early mornings and evenings.
2: Yeah, well, basically any time. Um, my job at the university was, uh, I was hired from th- by the university, the university. Uh, Center for Environmental Studies as a research professor,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but uh, they had no program for me to be researching. It was a brand new center, and as they said to me, "This is soft money, meaning it's funded year to year. If we don't spend it now, they'll take it away again." So you're hired, they said. So uh, we have nothing for you actually to do. So start working on your own research program. But while you're doing that, maybe you could help Bob here, the assistant director, with his data. I said, "Bob's got ten years worth of data in his back room. You have a computer background." They said, "By which." They meant that I had one class in Fortran programming, which I took to keep my husband company in the College of Business, mm-hmm. but it was one more than any of them had. And they said, so you can help Bob get his stuff into into the computer, as they put it. Mm-hmm. This was back in the day when microcomputers, as they were called, had just barely begun to cra- creep into yeah. academia. They yeah. weren't even in editorial offices for another five or six years after that. And um, so they still assumed that you kind of unscrewed the top, poured the data in, and you got reports out the bottom. But nobody knew how to do that except me, so. So I spent the next 18 months of my life writing Fortran programs to analyze the contents of bird gizzards, which is what Bob did. You know, This resulted in an 800-page monograph on the dietary habits of the birds of the Colorado River Valley, just starting my career in immense publications.
1: I read that you were inspired in part for this novel, watching an episode of Doctor Who called mm-hmm. War Games, which mm-hmm. was set in 1745 with a Scottish character named Jamie McCrimmon. That's right. So mm-hmm. would you... Did you see this episode and then think... Bing, I've got it, I've got to go start this novel, or were you in the process of oh, no. starting a novel <laughs> already, and then this sort of fed into it? Or had, had Well,
2: it... I was, uh, you know, tossing it around in my mind, because the first question, well, if you want to write a novel for practice, what kind of novel? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because all I knew was that I was supposed to be a novelist. I had no idea what kind of novel. I was thinking maybe I would write, uh, you know, uh, crime novels or murder mysteries, because at that point, that was mostly what I read. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't know how to write mysteries. They have plots. I'm not sure I can do that yet. Um, maybe I should write something easier. What's the easiest possible? kind of thing for me to write. And I thought, well, for me, it would be historical fiction. I was a research professor. I had access to the international library loan system, as well as a very good-sized university library. I said, it seems easier to look things up than make them up, and if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record, which actually works really well. And so I said, okay, historical fiction. Where shall I place this? Because history is a big thing. And, you know, one time would do as well as another for my purposes. So I was just, you know, casting around, looking for sort of areas of high conflict, because this is the one thing you need for a story is conflict. You don't have that. You don't have a story. So I was thinking, well, you know, American Civil War, this has a lot of conflict. You know, World War II. No, everybody does World War II. I don't want to touch that. And, you know, uh, Babylon, Sumeria, I don't think so. And, you know, just uh, trying out things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, this is when I came across this particular thing. At this point in my career, I was so busy, I didn't have time to watch television. But once a week, um, I would watch television with the family. on Saturday afternoon, PBS was doing a rerun of all of the uh, Doctor Who series, which started way back in the 50s, and this was one of those. That's it was awesome. a really old show. And I did this because it was half an hour long, which was just enough time to do my nails. Because <laughs> the kids were quiet, nobody was bothering me. And, you know, it was a nice metal respite. So I was, you know, playing, paying attention. And as I say, it was this particular uh, young man who appeared in his kilt. Mm. I was thinking, well, that's kind of fetching. Anyway, I found myself <laughs> thinking about this the next day in church. Yeah, I don't claim divine revelation, but I was in church. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, you want to write a book, it doesn't really matter where you set it. You know, you've got a spark here, at least, you know, let's look into it. So mm-hmm. I said, fine, Scotland, 18th century. So that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland or the 18th century.
1: I love it. This nugget, this War <laughs> Games episode of Doctor Who is out there, <laughs> like this little nugget or yeah. seed that became this that's whole other <laughs> universe, far bigger than <laughs> the episode itself.
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> that's great. No, this is really all you need. I mean, that's all I need to start work on any given day is what I call a kernel. Just mm-hmm. just that, a very concrete vision, either something I can see, something I can hear, uh, a line of dialogue, or maybe even just an emotional ambiance. If it's something where it comes with words, you know, that I can feel or see, you know, a phrase or a sentence forming around whatever it is, that's where I can start.
1: I love your certainty, too, that you were meant to be a writer. Is that something well, that your that. childhood friends and family growing mm-hmm. up Knew about you.
2: Oh no! <laughs> you kept that to <laughs> it's not yourself. Gonna, yeah, I was not going to tell anybody. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So this book becomes Outlander, and I know in the UK it came out under a different title called cross stitch that was my original title but that was just
2: my yeah. it was it's not a really good title but that was my working title and so that's how i submitted it and uh it was picked up first in the u.s and they said well cross stitch sounds too much like embroidery can you think of something more interesting mm-hmm. and you know, it took 11 months and we finally came up with outlander mm-hmm. uh and then they sold it in the uk and they said well to us an outlander someone from south africa so you know can you think of something else and i said well originally i called it cross stitch and they said oh lovely and published it it under that
1: title, <laughs> and so you got the best of both worlds. You got one of each. Yeah, that's good. now
2: mind you, once the TV show started up, then the UK had a, a interest in changing the title. <laughs> right, it, the, the, the stars, publicity.
1: folks at the network, mm-hmm. agreed with Outlander as the uh, oh, yeah. the better title. Obviously, mm-hmm. okay, the, all the, the time travel aspect of the book it reminds me. I just read this nonfiction book called Art and Physics, mm-hmm. and the premise of the book is that there's a, sort of a universal mind mm-hmm. of you know, the, the human population sort of moving in large, you know, sort of big steps together as mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. as a collective. And the premise of the book as well is that art throughout history, art has anticipated science.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the book goes to examples all the way through ancient Greece. But it, as one example, there are artists like Manet and Cezanne mm-hmm. who started incorporating techniques into their painting mm-hmm. that had ideas of time travel and the theory of relativity Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how things would appear when moving at the speed of light, things like that, Mm -hmm. that were decades ahead of Einstein and the theory of relativity. It sort of Mm -hmm. anticipated what was coming Mm -hmm. a few decades later. It'll be interesting to see, you know, your Mm -hmm. book has these aspects in it that maybe some genius at MIT is going to Put into equations 30 years from now.
2: (laughs) Well, we'll have to see about that. But yeah, no, people constantly ask me, you know, how did you get from being a scientist to being a a novelist? And I said, Mm -hmm. well, easy. I wrote a book. They don't make you get a license. But basically, what they're asking is, what's the difference between science and art? Because science is this cold, logical, you know, clinical kind of thing, and art is this warm, fuzzy, colorful kind of thing. Whereas, in fact, they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, art and science are just two sides of the same coin. And that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, both of these things depend on what we described loosely as the law of large numbers which is you know there is in fact you know this this i don't even know what you would call it exactly it's it's movement in a way and it's uh and its existence in a way. But yeah, there are patterns that emerge and and it takes a while for them to become obvious to someone who's looking. But, uh, you know, if you're looking, you'll see them.
1: It's interesting you're, you're able to toggle between sort of the left brain and the right brain side of this. And th- th- the same book <laughs> I'm reading just to stay on this one, because it's a terrific book called mm-hmm. Art, and, mm-hmm. Art and Physics, if anyone's mm-hmm. interested. But it, it points out that one of the few people in history to be able to really excel at both left and right brain function was da Vinci. Mm-hmm. who was reached sort of the highest rungs of both the artistic side and the scientific side and so mm-hmm. you're able to do that as well you're on the you're in the da Vinci category <laughs>
2: <laughs> me and Piero della Francesca uh, he actually wrote a book about the mathematical principles behind his sculpture and his and his art which mm-hmm. you can see easily if you look closely at his art but uh, but he is another one he wasn't quite as famous as da Vinci but he definitely was working on the same lines yeah, yeah we know this because we went on a Piero della Francesca crawl through Italy a couple of years ago Yeah.
1: So, Outlander came out in ninety one. Your first book, mm-hmm. yeah, which must have been a big change for you. And then the <laughs> stars television series premiered in two thousand fourteen, which I imagine would be a, a second big change for you. It was, yeah. How did life change for you with those two uh, those two moments?
2: Well. Uh... <laughs> uh when my agent called to tell me that he had uh, not only sold Outlander, but had got me a three-book contract, which was quite nice, um, he had sent the manuscript out uh, immediately upon my sending it to him. And uh, he called four days later to update me, as he said. And so I called back to here, expecting that at least somebody would have said, well, here, I'm not reading a 10-pound book. Take it back. And uh, in fact, one of them did do that, but that was different. Uh, she had had not actually read the manuscript. She was leaving her job that day, said, there's nothing I can do with it. So she just tucked a rejection slip in and sent it back. Uh, but the other four had made offers for it. And so he was able to negotiate amongst them, and he merged with a three-book contract. So naturally, this was extremely exciting. Well, I had not told my father at all what I was doing. <laughs> he tended to get very hyper about things. Uh, well, you know, very, very conservatively hyper, you might say. Mm-hmm. He grew up as the youngest of 13 children in New Mexico, the son of a poor New Mexican dirt farmer who died mm-hmm. when he was three months old. So, you know, he had a hard early life. And, you know, it was very much about, you know, make a living, you know, you can play around with it for the writing later. Mm-hmm. But uh, I never expressed an interest to him in writing books because I knew what he'd say about it. So I was smart enough not to say that. But anyway, now that I actually had, you know, an offer for quite a lot of money, um, I called up and uh, told him what I'd been doing. And I said, oh, and we have this multi-book contract and so forth. And, uh, and you know, it was a lovely, mushy conversation. He said, how proud my mother would have been of me. hmm And uh, anyway, I said, love you, hung up. 30 seconds later, he calls back. He says, don't quit your job. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's only three books. So it's not- <laughs> yeah. No guarantees here. What about life insurance? <laughs> you know? right. What about health insurance, etc.? Mm, excuse me. Anyway, I had no intention of <laughs> quitting my job at that point. Mm. I didn't quit, in fact, until I think about three years later when I was in the middle of, uh, of my second book, because, as I said, my job was soft money. It renewed every year. Mm. And while they would have renewed my contract, I said to my husband, look, you know, we're making enough money and your your business is doing well enough that. You know, we won't starve if I quit at the university. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to resign. So we did that and uh, everything worked out.
1: (laughs) Clearly, clearly. So 2014 comes and that's that takes (laughs) things to another level when the show comes out. Well, was way
2: different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, that's that's Mm -hmm. global fame and you're, you know, Uh running around doing all sorts of things, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, well, clearly not we, looking we back for a, uh, with, yeah, uh, yeah, no, def- definitely. Yeah, no. Having uh, a show behind you is not only extremely good for your overall income and visibility and so forth, mm-hmm. but it um, opens up a much wider audience to your books because there are people who never read, weirdly enough. And uh, if there's a, a show, uh, and suddenly they discover what there's books too, yeah. <laughs> you know, then often enough they'll go and read them, even though they would not normally read. I get letters from people said, well, you know, I haven't read a book in 20 years, but, you know, I just had to know the if there was there, more to the yeah, story. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's, I want to ask you about the TV series in that mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. sense, too, because to a person, every writer I've spoken to who's had their books made into movie or film. I will say, look, it's a separate thing. It's a separate mm-hmm. project. It's run by different people with a different mm-hmm. vision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, there's lots of carryover, yeah. but mm-hmm. it's a different project. But in your case, it must be interesting to have such a successful book series running in parallel and and loosely contemporaneously (laughs) with the successful (laughs) TV series. And one one of the Mm -hmm. few big examples I can think of that would be comparable is Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. But I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, how is it for you to have all of this happening in parallel?
2: It was really interesting. Yeah, I'm actually friends with uh, George Martin and, you know, I've uh, talked to him over the years because Mm -hmm. for a long time he and I were the only two people in the world in this particular position. Right. (laughs) So we had a lot in common. yeah, uh, there's a couple of different aspects to this. One of them, which George doesn't exploit to the degree that I have or did, is the fandom. But his books had, you know, a huge fandom to start with. I have one, too. But I had been running it um, as a fandom, so to speak, since about my third book, which is when, um, you know, the computer world opened up. What do you mean by running went. it as a fandom? Uh, uh-huh. well, let's see. Um, I... It's, it's basically manipulating your social media, having social media to start with. I did that before social media was a thing. You know, I had a, a blog um, since 1994. Wow. Which, yeah, as Early I say, days. most uh, well, publishing offices didn't even have microcomputers mm. <laughs> at that point, but some people did. And, uh, you know, I would go to various events and so forth, and people would say, when is the next book? I can't wait. When is the next book? Well, I write in pieces, disconnected pieces to start with, but I do have these pieces. And casting my way back to when I first started writing this, I belonged to a small group uh, called the Literary Forum, which is not a writer's group. We still exist. It's uh, just for people who like books. And so we, there were some writers and there were a lot of people who are not writers, but like to talk about books, talk with writers and so forth. So, um, I had been there for a while before I decided to start my own novel, and I was not going to tell these people what I was doing either for assorted reasons. Mm -hmm. But one night I was having an argument back and forth with a gentleman about what it feels like to be pregnant. And he said, oh, I know what that's like. My wife said, three children. And I said, yeah, Buster, I've had three children. <laughs> and he laughed. And he said, well, can you tell me what it's like? I said, I can, yes, but it's sort of complex. I tell you what, I have this uh, little scene that I wrote three or four months ago in which a young woman explains to her brother in some detail what it's like to be pregnant. I'll put that in the library here for you and you can read it. So, I did, and everybody who had been following the argument went and read this piece, and they all came rushing back, and they said, what is this? This is great. And I Mm -hmm. said, oh, it's this thing I'm writing. And they said, well, put up some more, (laughs) anyway, uh, to have someone actually like what you write. This is like heroin. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, you want to do it again. (laughs) And so, I took, at that point, to every three or four months, if I had a piece that would stand more or less by itself, I'd put it up for them. And they got more and more rabid about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is where I started with social media, which, as I say, didn't really exist at this point. But, you so know, George I, Martin doesn't, that.
1: doesn't take the approach of building the fandom. No,
2: no, side. he really doesn't. He, he, he runs a, a small website, which he calls Not a Blog, to relieve himself from the, the chore of having to write something for it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. He will just use it to announce things periodically or, you know, fend off <laughs> detractors or something like that. But I, you know, actively used it, um, mostly for, at, for feedback at the start. But then also because I realized that what I was writing was highly unusual. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a genre for one thing which makes things difficult. I said, so really, the only effective way I've ever found of marketing my books is to give people free samples. And that, you know, <laughs> pulls them in. Yeah. And before they know of, they have started reading this book that has no description. <laughs>
1: yeah. So do, do you and George commiserate on this dynamic that,
2: you we find talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> as the, the only two in the world dealing with. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes, we do. Yeah. Though his situation has changed because um, his show is finished in a rather ignominious way, in mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, his his show people lapped him and uh, you know finished the show before he had finished writing the series. Mm-hmm. And you know this is difficult to avoid. Were there some
1: lessons learned there for you in terms of how to mm-hmm. stay involved or not getting lapped or what? What's mm-hmm. the takeaway from what happened? Yeah. With Game well, of I knew that I
2: wanted to stay involved if humanly possible. Um, Um, Both because, uh, you know, I have a deep interest in what they do with the show and I would prefer that they didn't do, you know, some of the obvious things that they might do, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also because of the fandom. Now, one of the reasons that that stars slash Sony, Sony is the production arm, uh, wanted my series is because of the success of Game of Thrones. They were looking for a big fantasy series that they could do something similar with. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there we were. Mm-hmm. I had a you know, built-in fandom of, you know, at least two million fans that I could reach via social media, yeah. which is, you know, not peanuts. And, you know, uh, I was thinking, well, if you want to use my fandom, I'm happy to do that, but you're going to talk to me. <laughs> you
1: know? Right. Yeah. You get final say. And you're, I don't get I final think... say,
2: believe you. They're never the going to give you that, you <laughs> know you never have control but, but run- you can have input <laughs>
1: in- input and you have your i think it's 10th and final maybe is coming up
2: it's meant to be yeah <laughs> okay
1: and so you're out in front of the show in a sense At the that moment you're yeah. <laughs> not gonna get lapped as as uh he was i imagine he has some regrets about mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how that landed and then does he mm-hmm, try to land mm-hmm. it in an alternate way
2: well um you know without you know Saying anything that I oughtn't to say about George and so forth, because it's his private business. But essentially, you know, they came to this point. They said, "We have the, our final season is coming up. You haven't finished your sixth book. What you can? What can you tell us about it so we can, you know, adapt it and so forth?" So he told them everything that he knew at that point about what was going to happen. So they took it and they wrote their own show. Yeah. Uh, well, as it turned out, he didn't like the way they finished it. And neither did anybody else. But uh, you know, this was sort of unavoidable at the time. And in fact, he has not yet finished that book i mean there's no pressure other than the people who would like to read it mind you and he has a lot of practice in resisting them but uh so to speak but um you know my setup with the with the stars people is somewhat different and that i've been working you know hand in glove with them since the Mm -hmm. beginning uh my contract says that i am a consultant on the show and I asked my agent, what does this mean exactly? What do they expect me to do? And he said, well, probably nothing. He said, this is just a way of getting you more money because, you know, the consultant budget comes out of a different pot than the uh, than the, the, the rights money and so forth. He said, so um, essentially it depends on your relationship with the people who are running the show. If they like you and you get along with them and all that, they may want to actually consult with you, in which case you do whatever whatever it is they'd like to the extent that you feel comfortable doing it. Uh, they may just want you to go away, in which case," you just pocket the money and go away. I said, okay. But, you know, I did want to be involved. And so I I made sure that I was, I, uh, you know, talked to the people ahead of time and, you know, they were very receptive because, you know, uh, not only the fandom, but, you know, I'm actually fairly amiable (laughs) and
1: (laughs) (laughs) easy to get along with. Yeah. uh
2: We got along very well.
1: Well, I've read (laughs) some of the, the fandom and the blogs out there. And I have noticed Mm -hmm. one thread in comparing the books to the show is that most of the people writing online seem to prefer the Claire Randall from the books, Mm-hmm. To the Claire reason, Randall of the show, that there's it's a little more nuance. There's an inner <laughs> monologue mm-hmm. in the, she the does She's a yeah. yeah and she, she, there's a humor that comes across with her.
2: Well, yes, uh-huh. yeah, um, there is that humor. If you're not naturally funny, is very, very difficult to write, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not usually a requirement. Uh, you know there are, are shows that are comedy but they're written by you know people who are funny yeah. <laughs> whereas if you're a natural tv writer that's not a requisite a requisite for them to write mm-hmm. and they should do plot and you know decent dialogue and so forth but i don't think that you can write funny dialogue if you don't actually have the knack for it Mm-hmm. It's not uh, It's not a lack on their side. It's just, you know, are you naturally funny or aren't you? And some of them are, but most of them aren't.
1: Do you have a mm-hmm. sense of the fans in terms of the readers versus the watchers? The people oh, yeah. I was reading seemed to be doing both, and they were comparing, but do. are there mm-hmm. many readers only or many oh, yes. watchers only, or are most people <laughs> both?
2: Most of the people who talk to me are both, but they're mm-hmm. coming on my social media, so naturally they're reading the books or have been exposed to the books. I hear... From the show, only people more or less at second hand, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know their attitudes are somewhat different. They they love the show, but their their vision of Jamie and Claire are somewhat different, mm-hmm. as noted, because there's differences in the character, yeah. and so forth. You know, the, well, one thing about television, which is just uh, you know the uh, the commonality of the day and so forth, is this emphasis on strong women you know yeah, yeah. and so there's so we have had many scripts you know where you know clara's basically stomping over everybody in her 10-ton boots to indicate that she is a strong woman and so forth and i usually sort of clutch my head and i've seen you, you know, know can we back this off a little
1: bit yeah you don't really have to do that i totally agree i've <laughs> seen that in a number of shows i was watching mm-hmm. yellowstone which i mm-hmm. have really enjoyed that show mm-hmm. except that the Daughter, I can't remember the daughter's name of the. Uh, do you know what Mike the the daughter Kevin Costner's daughter's mm-hmm. name in that show? Whatever her name is, is completely overwritten. Is I don't know if you watch the show, but she's completely overwritten as a mm. tough woman. It's like kind of annoying to watch. It's as though a, yes. it's a guy writing his image of what a tough woman would be.
2: Well, yes, and a just. <laughs>
1: It's a little tough to take. I, I, yes. I, I otherwise really enjoy the show.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So before we go into the, the lightning round of questions, um, <laughs> what can you tell us about the 10th and final book, if anything?
2: Oh, let's see. Well, I've only been working on it for about the last, seriously, for about the last six months. Uh, book nine came out in 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh came with a lot of expectation attached to it in terms of, uh, yeah, of the book which it mad luckily you know everybody appeared to like it and all that mm-hmm. but which is a great thing don't get me wrong about that but for instance the um, poison pen bookstore which is my local independent store I've worked with them for years and years and years and they keep all my books in 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 uh, stock and I go by and and sign their orders and so forth all the time mm-hmm. so they always will offer my books as uh, first edition signed you know and they said could they do that for bees and I said well sure of course. So they did, and uh, they sold 30,000 copies to start with.
1: Just the one location the sold 30,000? Oh yes, my gosh. Did.
2: Yeah, they had to actually rent a warehouse at the airport near where I live. <laughs> 30,000 books is a whole lot of
1: books. That's for an independent store. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, it is. And I signed them all, you know, uh, really? as cramps as well. in your hands. <laughs> well, let me see. Um, you may notice a slight difference in my hands. This is the one I signed books oh, with. Oh, yeah, I do
1: see a little difference there on that pointer finger in particular. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. I had a uh, nice uh, eternity band that my husband had given me, which mm-hmm. fit on that finger. And I noticed that it was getting tighter and it was hard for me to pull it over the joint because the joint had enlarged. And he said, why aren't you wearing your, your band? And I said, well, it's uh, I can still get it on, but it, it scrapes my finger when I get it off. And he said, oh, well, give it to me. Maybe I can get it expanded. And uh, so I did and he took it off and he said, well, the bad news is that they couldn't expand it, but the good news is that I found you a bigger one. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> We'll live with that. <laughs> so, yeah, but it, it, it does actually take a physical toll on you doing that much signing, Is yeah. in addition to the 30,000 actual hardcover books, and that involves a lot of actual physical labor. I need mm-hmm. a team of about 10 people to, you know, shovel open books, <laughs> pile mm-hmm. them up, etc., working with me, and we can mm-hmm. only do it for about four hours a day, <laughs> otherwise you'd die. But... Um, Besides that, uh, the U.S. publisher said, could I sign 17,000 tip sheets for them to bind into the books? Mm-hmm. Which I could do. Uh, the U.K. said, could we have 8,000, and Canada put in a modest bid for 2,000. So all those combined with the Eastern Press and a few other things, I signed my name 72,000 times when bees came out. Wow. So basically, I did nothing but sign my name for six months <laughs> that and, and recover and you know, do events and things like that. So it was a well while before things actually settled down. To the point where I could begin working on the next book.
1: You've got to do some hand workout. There's got to be Ooh. like uh, I don't know Chinese worry balls or something that you can do to, to prepare <laughs> for those. the next book.
2: <laughs> yes, I have Chinese worry balls. I also have a good masseuse who showed me how to do acupressure uh, when you finish signing, so that your hands will not That's actually funny. not a. These not are the,
1: these are the little things that people don't think about with the with the hugely successful no, writers sure out don't. there <laughs> signing your name to the point where you just your hand seizes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. So well, this is why we we actually did video. Of me signing, you know, a few thousand, and they'd set up a, a, a phone that was recording video, and then it would do, do stop action, so they could mm-hmm. see the piles of books going up and down. Yeah, side, and, and as you said earlier, there, the
1: group of people has mm-hmm. the sort of supporting mm-hmm. group to move mm-hmm. the books in front of you and keep Absolutely. the whole kind of conveyor belt moving. Of yeah, if I had to do it by myself, you know,
2: pick it up, open it, <laughs> sign it, yeah, put it back, etc., yeah. I'd still be there. <laughs> right.
1: Right. So, is there? There's no firm ETA on the tenth there never book, is. but is there mm-hmm. a, a thought or anything you can tell us about the content of it?
2: Mm, well, it's going to continue from where B's left off. That's right. all I could tell you. I mean, I could tell you a few other things, but they're so open-ended that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't make sense. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, we're all looking forward to it. So on to the lightning round for Diana. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Do my best.
1: Mm-hmm. Your favorite book as a kid?
2: Okay. Well, as I said, I've been reading since I was three. So my favorite book when I was three would have been. Uh, dead heat between uh, Frank Buck's Jungle Book, which had a lot of animals and so forth, and a book called Mr. Mixie-Dough, which is by uh, a artist uh, slash author named Vernon Grant. Very, very talented. It was a very simple story, which I have forgotten, but uh, the art was spectacular. It had black pages and the art with Mr. Mixie-Dough, who was a very primitive sort of little caveman thing who, who cooked, but his, all of his vessels and things were sort of cubistic and in very bright colors. And uh, that was fascinating fascinating you know i found it mysterious and magical and all that and it stuck in my mind so much that uh when i was 68 i think i went uh, to ab books to see if there was a copy available and i got one (laughs)
1: that's great so really i mean it must have made a huge impression to be so uh yeah no
2: absolutely (laughs)
1: so vivid (laughs) book or books you're reading now
2: oh let me see what am i reading now Mm. Oh, I'm reading a um, a Scottish crime uh, um, novel called Where the Bodies Are Buried by Christopher Brookmeyer and his his wife, whose first name is Marisa, and I forget her last name. That uh, yeah, I love Chris's uh, stuff. It's very very good. He uh, has several books that are semi crime fiction, semi fantasy as well. Mm-hmm. Which he's written on his own, but he just has a, a very deep Scottish sense of humor, <laughs> and handles violence really really well. <laughs> also excellent dialogue.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll check him out. Okay if you depart the present mm-hmm. for any time period and place mm-hmm. past or future
2: mm-hmm. where and when would that be mm-hmm. I would be afraid to go to the future frankly <laughs> you don't know what might have happened by then <laughs> Yeah uh as far as the past goes um I think I would probably like to go to places where there are inflection points, you know, where something really interesting in human development was just about to happen. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking I might like to go back to about 3500 BC, which is when writing was invented, and just see, you know, how things changed.
1: <laughs> that is, that is, that reminds me of another book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. I think the yeah. invention of language <laughs> Diamond, <yeah>. happened <laughs> once, maybe twice in all of history. Everything yeah. else is sort of derivative off of these initial incredible right. moments mm-hmm. in history. Of exactly. When it, when yeah. it began. Mm-hmm. Most fun you've ever had at a book event?
2: (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, Let's see. I mean, they tend to be quite quite a lot uh, similar. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. I have had uh, one or two where they had you know drinks. (laughs) Those were usually good. The smaller events tend to be the most fun. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) The one I think you in Scotland is going to be sort of a big fandom event for you know focused on sort of the Outlander universe mm-hmm. right people be I don't know, in will costume be and things like that
2: oh <laughs> well we do have we do have a presence at comic cons so whenever they really do things like that mm-hmm. and yes I have had people come in con in costume to many events um, the thing in uh, Scotland though is uh, being held and sponsored by the University of Glasgow and it's meant to be you know semi scholarly okay. so we will have a lot of uh, you know invited papers and so forth uh, I expect there will be a number of fans at it too yeah. and you know it being Scotland they're very uh, amenable to people wearing kilts whether they're <laughs> Scottish or not
1: <laughs> favorite few TV shows to recommend to listeners
2: mm-hmm. well as I say I hardly ever watch television because I just don't have time I love television but uh, amongst other things part of being a consultant on my own show is that they send me the dailies the footage that they shoot every day mm-hmm. so I usually have a couple of hours worth of, of Outlander dailies to watch or at least skim through every night oh,
1: that's fun sort of like the raw footage that's right yeah that's great
2: Yeah. No, it's terrific fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. That must be fun to go through. Yeah. All the out, funny outtakes and things included.
2: No, very much so. Yeah, there was one scene very recently where, you know, something dire has happened and and Jamie, you know, picks up the, the victim and is shouting for uh, Denzel Hunter, who is a, a character who's a young Quaker doctor and so forth. Sam <laughs> picks up the, the, the young woman and is shouting, Bring me, bring me Denzel Washington <laughs> and the whole set just freezes with everybody going because <laughs> i don't want to laugh at him his face is just sort of <laughs> and then his director shouts cut and they all burst then out. you can let it go yeah, yeah. exactly once you hear cut well, that's yeah, fine so yeah there's a bunch of that but also there's just scenes where someone has just done it so well that you want to see them do it again mm-hmm.
1: uh-huh. something that you and claire randall have in common and something you don't
2: Oh, let's see. Well, as far as having things in common, uh, we both like men, which is not a very popular position to have these days, but but I stand by it. And also we are both easily amused, which may have something to do with why we like men. But uh, some things that we don't, um, hmm. not that much really.
1: <laughs> is that right? Okay, good.
2: So you and Claire are, are pretty <laughs>
1: simpatico. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And final question for Diana, mm-hmm. one piece of good advice for the listeners.
2: Ooh, well, it would depend on what kind of advice you're looking for. If you are wanting to be a writer, which is the sort of advice people often ask me for, I can answer that one. Uh, If you want to be a writer, I have three rules. Number one is read. You know, read everything. Read lots of stuff. Read all the bad stuff as well as good stuff, because this is how you learn what bad stuff and good stuff is. And so you will recognize it in your own work. People often say to me, well, how do I know whether what I've written is any good? I said, how do you know that the book you just read is any good? You know, it's the same criterion. (laughs) You know, if you can stand to read your own stuff. It's probably all right. But uh, but also, this is how you begin to learn what good writing looks like and how to do it. You look at two books and you say, well, I like this book. I didn't like this one as much. Why is that? Well, the people in this one seem more real. The people over here seem kind of wooden. Why is that? Well, I think it's the way they talk. You know, these people sound like real people, and these people, you know, they they go on and on about stuff they shouldn't be talking about, and you've learned the first rule of dialogue. Keep it short and keep it relevant. And uh, so, number one is read. Number two is write, because nothing will teach you to write except the actual act of putting words on a page. Mm-hmm. A lot of actors would like to write probably because they have a lot of <laughs> downtime in between things and so forth. And they often ask me and I said, well look, um, just take 10 minutes a day. so you could do anything for 10 minutes, you could probably hold your breath for 10 minutes if you tried. But take 10 minutes a day, sit down and write something. It doesn't matter what you know write what happened that day. You know uh, anything that occurs to you, it doesn't have to be for a book or anything in particular, just words, write. 10, uh, 10 minutes of words do it again the next day if you can keep it up for a week then you have what it takes to actually write a book none of them have been able to do it so far
1: <laughs> is, that, is is that right none of the actors on the on the set it can do ten minutes seven days no nope.
2: mm-hmm. interesting <laughs> apparently not or if they can they haven't told me <laughs> but, uh, I don't ask you know that would be rude but uh, that they never mentioned it to me again so I'm mm-hmm. assuming they gave up at some point okay so one was read number two is right and that leads us to the third and most important rule don't stop
1: right well yeah to so mm-hmm. picking up mm-hmm. where where two left off
2: that's right mm-hmm.
1: yeah well that, that's great advice and mm-hmm. as you say it, it is hard for everyone to take I mean it seems so mm-hmm. simple Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always resonate with people right away to just mm-hmm. go ahead and actually take the take the steps.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, most people start with the idea that there are actual rules to how to write. And I mean, there are, but none of them are set in stone. And the thing is that you won't be aware of any of them or how they work or be able to put them into practice unless you actually write stuff actually down. Do it, yeah. You can't do it a priori. Uh, most other things, you can lay out a plan, and then you follow those steps. Um, even people who outline their books. Some people can write outlines, but then they can't write the book, and uh, I can't write outlines. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, so I write in pieces, and then I glue them together, and, you know, this, this happens. But, you know, it's whatever works for you. You mentioned uh, two sides of the brain, right and left. Well, um I am lucky in that both sides of my brain work. It's not true for everybody. <laughs> One member of my family is totally enumerate. <laughs> you know, cannot do numbers at all. That's not my husband. But uh, anyway, it, it is possible to be only one-sided, but I'm not. Um, to, you know, essentially, how those work, you're not going to be able to apply them unless you're actually in the trenches handling this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like trying to uh, intellectually grasp what it's like to you know run a nuclear reactor or something like that. You may know it in... On the in book, but you don't know it hands on.
1: That's a, well. It's great advice, and, and advice you have lived as in oh, yeah. 1988. <laughs> you thought I'm going to start writing a book to figure out how to do it, yeah. and yeah. next thing you know, it's a three book deal, and mm-hmm. yeah. you're off and, and running from there. Yeah. Well, great advice, Diana. Yes. Thank you so much for coming in. My it was pleasure. a pleasure mm-hmm. talking to you.
2: Oh, you too. Thanks so much, and thank you for the nice drink. <laughs> Cheers.
1: Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.